to the Build Your Best Family podcast, where we discuss both the challenges and awesomeness of raising happy, healthy kids. We're Erin and Josh Guerreri, parents of five young kids, and we'd love for you to join us on the journey from surviving to thriving. Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode with Build Your Best Family. I'm Erin, and this is my husband, Josh. Greetings, parenting fans. <laughs> Not everybody's a fan of parenting. <laughs> right. Greetings, parents. Depends on the day, probably. Yeah. Um, so today's podcast episode is pretty complex, right? Yeah, it's a popular topic of conversation around uh, our household lately, particularly because we've got a uh, one of our daughters is about to go into kindergarten. So the topic is about kindergarten and expectations. Yeah, and really like how those expectations have changed um, and how we can navigate those as parents of kids that we want to be successful in school, but also in life. So we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to give you five things you can do about those things um, that don't include like writing to your congressman or homeschooling or like going to live off the grid or anything. Yeah. And what prompted this, darling, was it was it not? I am <laughs> I'm holding Aaron's actual kindergarten report card from 1985. <laughs> Uh, which prompted this conversation because we looked at this kindergarten report card and uh, it was quite different than the report card uh, the kids get today in school, right? Yes. I think they call this like historical evidence. Ooh. Is that right? Nice. <laughs> History major. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So we were looking at it and it just gave us a really good chuckle because... Um, oh, hold on. You know what the, the other funny thing is we didn't think about? Aaron and I, so we, we started dating in high school, but little... Did we know that we were actually taught by the same uh, kindergarten teacher? They they had half day kindergarten programs. So Aaron was in the morning, the morning, which was I don't know, probably like eight to eleven or something. Yeah, eight to eleven. I was in the same. Mrs. Julius was our teacher. I was in the same uh, kindergarten classroom. I just came in uh, in the afternoon, rolled in around noon or so, <laughs> knocked out a couple hours. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um. Yeah, but then our paths did not cross again until sophomore year, which is so bizarre because our town was tiny. So anyway, um, but here's some background information that will kind of frame this um, particular discussion. One, we both attended this half-day program, kindergarten program, um, and a regular like K through 12 experience, right? You'd say that was regular? Yeah, yeah. All right. We both attended what is considered to be a good college, and we both did well there. Um, liberal arts, baby. <laughs> we've both always been employed in jobs that like we sought out and desired, you know, we, neither one of us have ever had to kind of like just take a job just to take a job. So we feel like we've been empowered, um, with skills to get us what we want and where we want in like the workforce air quotes. Yeah. Workforce, yeah. Um, we consider ourselves to kind of have turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, you're setting them up. So I think, is that what we're doing here? Setting them up like we've, we've, yes. we've had success. Well, you know, based on, and we'll, we'll kind of go backwards a little bit here, but based on this experience, this kindergarten experience that I had, um, you know, these are the things that came from that. So, you know, we've, we consider ourselves to have turned out okay, um, like good interpersonal skills. We're, yeah. we're okay people, I think. We made it on, on this, um, yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, we've also both been teachers. And so we talk about this, um, from the perspective of parents who have kids in schools and we see kind of the challenges that they are met with every day. But then we also talk about this from the perspective of teaching and having to meet these expectations as teachers, 
um, you know, when your job is kind of tied to that. Yeah. Like you've got to teach to standards sometimes. And, um, we've both done that. Um, and that's why, uh, I think we have a unique perspective on what we think about the standards and how it relates to your child's success inside and outside of the classroom. So, um, yeah. And also we're not here like a disclaimer here. We're not here to bash the public school system or the people working in it. Um, but even the educators that we know and love and trust consider to be like uber talented people, um, they see that there's like this growing disconnect between what we expect our children to do and how we're getting them there and what they're ready for. Um, so this is not like the public school system's terrible. Um, this is just kind of like, here's what we're dealing with today and how can we deal with this? Great. Great. Yeah? Great. Let's do it. Um, all righty. So let's talk a little bit about, um, kindergarten readiness, right? Like what your child is expected to know before getting to kindergarten. Um, keep in mind, we're talking about a four-year-old who may or may not have attended pre-K program. Um, also keep in mind that every kindergarten teacher we've talked to has said a good portion of the incoming students will not know these skills, but nonetheless, this is the current standard. Is that yes. right? Your Aaron's going to take us through the current standards. Um, well, these are the recommendations, recommendations for a yeah. child, um, going into kindergarten. So at the end of a pre-K year or not, a child going into kindergarten should be able to at least count to 30 and be able to tell what come, what number comes before and after a given number up to 20. Um, identify basic geometric shapes, like seven different shapes, circle, rhombus, all that stuff. No basic colors, and they list 10 of them. Identify numerals one through 10 in random order. Make most letter and sound matches and know the concepts of print from left to right, right side up, tracks, reading with finger, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, so by then the end of kindergarten, some of the standards are expected to have met, uh, and these are straight from Common Core standards, right? Um, language arts, rhyme words, associate long and short sounds with common spellings, read common high frequency words, use the most frequently um, used prepositions, uh, read emergent reader text with purpose and understanding, uh, math fluently add and subtract within five up to five, compose, decompose numbers one to 20, uh, and identify shapes as two or three dimensional. Yes. So while we've definitely had the conversation, um, that we certainly weren't doing like that complex of work in kindergarten. You know, when our kids bring home um, report cards or we go to conferences, we come home and we're like, wow, I wasn't doing that until like second grade. Um, finding my report card kind of just was like a hard copy, I don't know, picture of for sure we weren't doing that in kindergarten. And I don't know. I think. No, no let's dive into this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Hit them with. These are the things on this report card. All right, t- take them through some. Well, first of all, you should say that my, my height and weight are on the report card, <laughs> which I think Coming is funny. Coming in at 45 <laughs> inches and 44 and a half pounds, this kindergartner. Uh, yes. Is she able to identify sounds? Yes. Hey, that's a sound. Right. It's so, um, it's so nonspecific. Like, generally speaking, it's very nonspecific compared to what we see now, but very basically, the things that we were assessed on, in addition to things like, um, what are some of the... Oh, I like, is able to gallop. <laughs> is able to skip. Right, uh, which are gross motor things, um, yeah. but, you know... Uses paste neatly. <laughs> you know, you know oh, yeah. I got a satisfactory that's, on that one. That's true. All right. Um, but then it was, you know, a lot of it was 
growth in auditory perception, growth in motor development, growth in visual perception. But then the academic development was really just these very basic things. It's name eight basic colors versus the 10 that they should know today. Name four basic shapes versus the seven plus the dimensional aspects that they should know today. Um, identifies rhyming words. And so in my kindergarten, I just have to identify them, not develop them on my own. Um, tells full name correctly, prints first name correctly, names and writes numerals 0 through 12 in random order, um, counts objects up to 12, retells stories in a sequence, identifies small letters of the alphabet, identifies capital letters of the alphabet, identifies beginning sounds of words, um, which sounds very different than like reading with purpose, which mm -hmm. is what they want you to be doing at the end of kindergarten now. So what's the deal? Why, like, why is there this change? Why the increased rigor and expectations? Yeah, I think some of it has to do with the sort of changes in laws. Maybe No Child Left Behind uh, had something to do with some of those. Yeah. So we've read a couple of articles, which we'll link to, and we'll talk about a little bit here. But um, the researchers initially thought that these changes started to happen when kindergarten moved from like that half day um, model to full day, simply because the kids were just getting more exposure. But what they discovered was the significant changes occurred when No Child Left Behind was enacted in 2001. Um, and No Child Left Behind is a federal law mandating reading and math assessments starting in third grade. So with those requirements came more time spent teaching math and reading, and that time was taken out of things like art and music. And so this is big. Between 1998 and 2010, the number of teachers reporting daily music instruction decreased by 18 percentage points and daily art instruction decreased by 16 percentage points. In a similar vein, the number of teachers who spent at least one hour per day on child-selected activities dropped by 14 percentage points, and the likelihood that classrooms had discovery or play areas, such as like a sand table or a science area or art areas, fell by over 20 percentage points. So it was really kind of the No Child Left Behind thing that got things kicked off. And I think, you know, obviously... Um, the country was concerned with keeping up with international, you know, standards of education. So I think that that's where that stemmed from. Um, and yeah, let me quote um, that. There's a Washington Post article, and we'll, we'll post these articles and links in the uh, on buildyourbestfamily.com in the in the blog post. Um, so this this post says this: As for kindergarten, it could be argued that in some ways it's the new third grade. How? It used to be that kids were given time to academically grow at their own speed without being declared failures by first and certainly second grade if they couldn't read. Kids intellectually develop at different rates, and one of the most damaging aspects of the earlier is not only better but necessary philosophy is that this natural process is no longer respected. Yes. And so what we've seen um, in our classrooms when we taught and with our own kids is what researchers, researchers are reporting that brains develop at different times, just like our physical bodies, and declaring that a six-year-old is behind as a reader because he's not reading by the end of kindergarten is harmful. And we as parents have to guard against this kind of falling behind message for the sake of our kids. And this is a huge one, I feel like, um, because you know, you get together at birthday parties and at cookouts and, you know, you hear, well, so-and-so is in the gifted class or so-and-so is reading chapter books. And you're like, well, you know, my kid's behind or is, are they behind? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times we'll go into a classroom conference and if your child is not reading on the same level as, you know, the majority of the kids in that room, they're behind. 
Um, and I think that what we're doing is dangerous there. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing is, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the research, and, and again, we'll link to these articles, but the fact that the child's brain may not be able to uh, it, it, like physically, well, compute to make it physically possible to, to do something like make the letter E, right? The one guy talks about, you know, the, the, the child cannot actually make the curve and the line. And so they find other ways to do it just to appease the teacher or the, or the parent, right? They, they work these shortcuts that we end up having to undo later in their academic career when they're making E's backwards or they're doing, you know, they can't hold the pencil, right? So, um, you know, it's it's not that they don't want to. It's that sometimes these kids physically aren't ready and developed to do it. So, um, yeah, let's uh, maybe get into what we can do about it uh, right. as, as a parent. Uh, yes, yeah, so how do we navigate this as parents and this, like, falling behind message and, um, you know, especially kind of if you are in a school that – I think this may apply some to more underperforming schools because they're constantly trying. I taught in one of those schools. So you're just constantly trying to keep up the test scores and there's really not much attention um, paid to like the growth of the child as a whole. And that's not the case for every school, but, um, or every underachieving school. But I think that it's very easy for teachers and administrators to get caught in that trap of like test scores, test scores, test scores. Um, we're fortunate to not be in that situation. We have teachers and administrators who care about building a whole child. But um, there are things that we can do um, short of like taking your kid out of school and going off the grid or like deciding that you're going to homeschool when really that might not be the best decision for you. You can still kind of keep your kids in the, the education system and navigate this and everybody turns out okay, right? We can do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we got five things, uh, five things we think about, right? Yeah. Uh, number one is managing expectations. So that's kind of the gist of what we've been talking about, that the idea of pushing four and five-year-olds too hard, um, you, you're, you're, you might have to rein those expectations in a little bit. Uh, we know it's easy to get caught up in test scores and whether or not your neighbor is reading chapter books, um, and it's really tough to not fall into that trap. So I think the first thing, manage your expectations. Um, know that every child is different and every child learns at a, at a different rate and it's going to be okay. And I think, again, we have a unique, uh, position here because we, we have five very different children. Um, and it's interesting for me to think about how, uh, you know, I, two, two of our boys I see are at different ends of the spectrum and how they learn one, uh, picked up numbers and letters by age two or three, right? Just yeah. very easy. Uh, the other, not so much, but, but we have, the other one has strengths that the, that the first one doesn't, right? The different strengths in, uh, that are non-academic related. And so appreciating those is important. Yes, I was going to say that too. Like every child is different and remembering that in your own family as well. So each of your kids is different. Um, and I will say that for the, our son that struggles with letters and number identification, um, it's, you know, I don't know if that will ever be a strength for him, but it has been true that the older he's gotten, um, it's been easier for him to learn when he gets a little bit older. So when we tried to push those things in pre-K, at the beginning of pre-K, when they were saying, you know, letters, 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 you know, get know this stuff, um, he was totally, like, not going to have that. But as he's gotten older, it, you know, his brain is developing in such a way that's making it easier for him to catch on. So he might not ever be, like, at the top of the class, but he's getting it. Um, so just being patient with that. Yes. Uh, and, and also too, you know, I think a lesson we've learned is maybe not to pigeonhole 
you know, the kids in there and your expectations too. Like, uh, he's never going to get it. Or he's just not academically uh, sound or whatever. You know what I'm saying, Aaron? Like the the idea like yes. that it's not going to change because we, we've been really surprised uh, in all of our kids um, in ways that you go, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't think they had it in them. Uh, and they really do. So again, if we, if we say at an early age, you know, you're, you're, you're labeling your kid at five years old, I think there's some danger in that. Right, so managing sure. expectations. Right. Okay. Um, next is to value free play. So in your home and in your family, you really need to place great emphasis on free play because that's where kids learn about how the world works. It teaches them about decision-making and risk-taking and compromise, all of these invaluable skills we need as adults. And, you know, what's scary is that that study showed that they took free play out of, they took so much of free play out of the classrooms that the only time they have it really is at home. And so if you, they come home and they're going right to, you know, cello practice and tutoring and all these other things, and then they eat dinner and then they go to bed um, they're missing that really important developmental time to learn the things they learn in free play. Yeah. Can I, can I say something here too, Aaron? You may. Yeah. So uh, there's a book by Peter Gray called Free to Learn, and he kind of explores undoing the traditional schooling uh, system that we have. But um, one of the points he makes is um, not confusing the idea of play because so, some adults will say, Oh, we work on free play. And, and it's, you know, they'll associate it with like a card game they play with their kids and they're getting them to learn letters and numbers by, you know, stomping on the ground or jumping up and down. And that that's play, but that is not free play. That might be like a fun active way to learn, but that it's not free play. So we, we don't want to confuse that because, um, play, play-based learning is different, right? This is, um, it should be real play is enjoyable. It's unstructured. It's self-chosen. It's unregulated. It's the kids going, choosing what they want to do, uh, without the adults involved at all. So, um, and let me quote him. I actually have a quote from the book, Aaron. Fancy. <laughs> Perhaps play would be more respected if we call it something like self-motivated practice of life skills. But, that would remove the lightheartedness from it and thereby reduce its effectiveness. So we are stuck with a paradox. We must accept play's triviality in order to re- realize its profundity. Wow. That's, That's big strong. Words. Yeah. Those are big words. Peter Gray, free to learn. <laughs> Get on it. Yeah. So free play is important. Um, the next thing that you can do to navigate this is to encourage failure and risk-taking. And this goes into free play as well. This is a big part of free play. I feel play. like we talk about this all the time. It's a huge one. Yeah. Um, failure gets such a bad rap, but it's only bad if we don't learn from it, right? So teaching our kids to persevere through failure is one of the best gifts that we can teach them. And there's endless opportunities for all of us, um, especially for the kids, um, but for all of us to fail and learn from it and persevere and take risks. Yeah, and talk about it. You know, sometimes at dinner table, we will say, okay, what's, what'd you fail at this week? And mom and dad go too, and we say, um, you know, I messed up at this or I tried this and it didn't work out uh, and that's okay. And it, it just sort of gives them uh, permission to fail in our household. Yeah. And when they have that, um, that kind of foundation of knowing that it's okay to try stuff and not be the best at it or not even succeed at it and that mom and dad do it too, um, it makes it okay for them. And I think that that's important. So number four, fourth thing we can do is teaching our kids how to cope with the message that they're behind because 
they are very perceptive. Kindergartners know um, which kids get taken out um, to go with like the gifted teacher and work on higher level skills. Um, they know that they get, you know, clumped into a group of kids that don't know all their letters yet. So very early on, they're picking up this message that they're behind. And whether or not the teacher is, you know, pushing that message, you know, they don't, they don't really have to push it for the kid to understand that like the school wants me to do this. I can't do it. And so I'm being treated differently because of that. Um, so I guess we push teaching the value of self-worth, um, and making sure that your child knows that their importance and value as a human is more than just a test score or more than just a reading group. And, you know, really kind of emphasizing that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, if we were to summarize, like just making sure that, um, like you said, their self-worth is not tied to that. Um, and you know, not, not pushing it at home as much to say, Hey, we got to, you know, a kindergarten working on homework. Uh, I don't know. You know, let's, let's, let's read, let's, um, you know, maybe, maybe we work on things for five minutes, but the idea that you come home and we're spending 30, 40, 50 minutes, whatever on kindergarten homework, um, I think only enforces like, the idea like, oh, I need to, I need to do this to catch up with somebody at school. Yes. Um, and then lastly, I think this is a, an important one, but sharing your thoughts with your child's teacher or school. And this is a tricky one because like I said before, you will run into schools and teachers who are so data and assessment driven that they simply just won't agree with you or they won't be willing to hear you, but you should not be afraid to say to your teacher, you know, thank you for your concern. I see that Grayson's reading score is below the average national norm. I also see that his score has improved slightly since the beginning of the year. And while I appreciate your professional perspective, and I know the district assesses you based on your class test scores, I hope you'll recognize that my son is five years old and nothing indicates that he has special needs just yet. We will just continue to read with him at home and encourage his playfulness and compassion. You know, developmentally, he's right on target for a five-year-old. I hope you'll do the same. That's kind of a mouthful, but those are kind of the ideas that you shouldn't be afraid to respectfully share with your child's teacher, um, knowing that each situation is different. And I will say this disclaimer that if a teacher indicates that there might be a concern about special needs, do not ignore that one. Um, teachers are specifically trained to identify like red flags that may lead to some early intervention that will greatly help your child succeed. So if you ignore those, you will be missing out on some things that would help your child succeed. Um, but like, and, and that's different than the normal, like this is coming from Aaron, a special ed teacher. So that that's different than, um, we need to get them on grade level. Right. Being behind is very different than special needs. But what I'm saying is like, as early as kindergarten, teachers see red flags, uh, you know, for, gotcha. and they may say, you know, we're concerned about this. Um, that's where it's a little bit tricky because I've had parents say, you know, like I know my kid and that that's, you know, nothing's wrong. Um, and while that's true on many levels, most parents are not, um, special educators or trained to pick up and see, um, special yes. needs things. So don't ignore advice from professionals in that regard, but, cool. um, you know, as, as we say in 
all of our communications, your communications with your child's teacher in school um, should be really respectful and appropriate, right? Like those teachers. (laughs) Coming up in there. (laughs) They are, you know, taking care of your child for most of the day. They really want what's best for your kids. Um, But, you know, you have to advocate for your child as well. So doing so respectfully is um, the best way to go about doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think bottom line, if I were to sum up with a, with a young kids, let them play at home, you know, let, what they do at school, you can't really, uh, impact, right? Like you, what, what your teacher's going to teach in school. Uh, but you can impact the hours and hours they spend with you at home. Uh, and I think you can't undervalue uh, free play enough. Did I say that right? You can't undervalue it enough? Yeah, I think you said that right. I would say undervalue and teaching self-value, self-value and self-worth. Yeah. Um, because that's where your kid is going to learn, you know, how to persevere and succeed in life in general. I don't think I said that right. You can't undervalue, undervalue? it enough. Overvalue. Over, overvalue. You, you just got to put a lot of value <laughs> on free play is what I'm saying. I'm struggling here. Like, let your kids go play, right? Yes. Yes. You don't need to be around them all day. Plus, it's not, you know, it's not healthy when your kids are around you all day. Nope. You need some time. You need some space. All All right. right. That about wraps up our thoughts on that. Holla. That's it. See ya.